in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the earth was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. As we hear in the program today, this is a story about deconstruction and reconstruction. It's a reboot on a cosmic scale. God is judging mankind, but he is not done with mankind. There is mercy, there is salvation, and there is a future. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 8. In the last chapter, we read some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. Chapter 7 ends with these words. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So this was a cataclysm, a physical, geological, cultural, social, and spiritual catastrophe. It was deconstruction followed by reconstruction. It was a reminder that this is God's world, and if we want to live in it, then we must live according to his word and nature. It was a definitive display of God's wrath and justice. But it was also a display of his mercy, patience, and covenant faithfulness. And that is where the story turns now in Genesis 8, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, in the Bible, to say that God remembered something is not to suggest that he might have forgotten it is to say that he has turned towards, in this case, towards the people and even the animals in the ark, he has turned towards them in covenant love and care. It is to say that God intervenes on their behalf in order to work salvation. That's what we mean when we say God remembered. Verse 1 goes on to say, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. 
Now, it will be helpful to remember here that the flood fundamentally changed the face of the earth. Before the flood, there were no great mountains. The earth was flatter and the land was watered by fountains beneath the land and by mists above. The flood was caused not just by rain, but by the breaking of the earth's crust and the bursting forth of the earth's fountains. The time of the flood must have been absolutely terrifying for the people on the earth. There would have been volcanoes erupting, earthquakes moving and shaking and tearing apart the continents and unleashing explosions of water and lava and steam. Water came from everywhere and covered the earth like a blanket. And then under the weight of that water, the surface of the earth changed again. Mountains were pushed up. By the way, this is why you're always hearing about marine fossils being discovered on the top of mountains, like have been discovered on the top of the Himalayan mountains. Those mountaintops used to be underneath the water. And they were then pushed up under the weight of the water and the disruption of the earth's surface in response to the flood. Psalm 104 says that very thing. Speaking about the earth, the psalmist says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they might not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You hearing that? So, From Noah's perspective, the world would have looked totally different when he got out of the ark. Gone was the flat world of rivers and mists, and in its place was a world of mountains, valleys, and seas, not to mention continents and oceans. It was a different world. The flood dramatically altered the face and shape of the planet. And the ark comes to rest, we're told, not on a mountain that had been there and was covered by waters. The Bible doesn't say that the waters were deep enough to cover the mountains that we see today. The Bible says that the flood made the mountains that we see today. The ark came to rest on a mountain that had been thrust up. And all the water began to recede into these valleys, was funneled down into these basins that were created. And that became the oceans, the lakes, the ponds, the the seas that we see today. Verse 6 goes on to say, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him any more. Now, commentators generally explain the sequence of birds here by pointing out that a raven is a scavenger. It will light upon floating carcasses, and there must have been many of those. The fact that it didn't come back told Noah that there was still a lot of death and unpleasantness out there upon the waters. The dove, however, is a very gentle and nervous bird. A dove would never land on a carcass. She would need solid ground. The fact that she came back meant that the waters had not receded enough for them to get out of the ark. 
The second time when she came back with an olive leaf, Noah obviously understood that things had started to grow again. Interesting side note, olive trees are notoriously hardy. And it is entirely conceivable that they might have survived in places and could have started to bounce back after the waters receded fairly quickly. Now, when the dove didn't return at all the last time, that told Noah that she had found a safe place to nest. And from that, he inferred that the world was starting to come back to life. Verse 13 says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, The waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the earth was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now, we often picture this scene in our minds, and we, we picture it in our children's Bibles, and it always looks like such a happy scene. But I think in reality, this would have been a very somber day. There would have been reminders of death all around. The the world would have looked entirely alien and transformed. This would have been a day of hope, but it would also have been a day of holy fear. It, it, It would be hard not to feel some mixture of gratitude and trepidation. You'd be thankful to be alive, but also aware that you were a sinner And you lived in a world ruled over by a holy God. And you had to be thinking something like this could easily happen again. And I think that explains verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. See, I don't think that you come out of an ark with a handful of animals on a decimated planet and immediately think, we need to kill some of those animals and offer them as sacrifices to God. I think you're aware of how precious each and every one of those animals is. Now, granted that there would have been some multiplying on the ark, of course, we're still dealing with very limited supply. So why in the world does Noah do this? And I think the answer has to be holy fear. He's saying to God, we are only alive because of your mercy. We are sinners and we will sin again. Please be merciful unto us. I think that has to be it. Uh, Let's pause there if we can, Pastor Paul. You mentioned a few minutes ago that we often picture this moment wrong in our imaginations. We depict it wrong in our children's Bibles. We think of it as this sunny, happy, joyous day, but you're right. Based on what just happened, there is no way that it could have looked that way, that the world would have been a muddy, broken mess. As you say, it would have looked entirely almost alien and transformed, and there's a sense that the world will go through an experience like that again in the future. Isn't that right? Yes. Last week, we referred to 2 Peter 3, 7, where Peter says, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction 
of the ungodly. Well, a few verses later in that same chapter, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, closed quote. So just as he delayed in the days of Noah to maximize the extension of mercy and salvation, so he is delaying now, not because he is slack in keeping his promises, but because he wants all people to be saved. But make no mistake, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and once again, the world and the heavens will be turned upside down. They will be burned up and dissolved. In Noah's day, God destroyed and renewed the world with water. The next time he will do it by fire. And passing through that renewal, as all those in Christ will do, I imagine we may feel a little bit like Noah coming out of the ark. We will be filled with gratitude for our salvation and hope for the future, but we will also be freshly and eternally impressed with the awesome holiness and majestic sovereignty of Almighty God. And like Noah, we will respond with worship. Absolutely. The imagery associated with this story in my mind has definitely shifted. Let's jump back into the text. Verse 21 says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So whatever Noah was saying there with his sacrifice, the Lord was clearly responding. He promised that he would never repeat this judgment. Again, that has to be a clue to what was in Noah's mind when he made the sacrifice. Noah must have been thinking, what is the point even of repairing the earth if the sin in our hearts will just summon another cataclysm, whether in six months or six years or 600 years? People haven't changed, so we're going to sin again. So why bother rebuilding? We haven't changed. God hasn't changed. So why should we hope for a better outcome? That must have been his thought. And so the Lord meets that thought and his sacrifice with a promise that he will let this thing run. He, he will persevere with us. He will not send another flood. The earth will remain. The seasons will remain. There will never again be a cataclysm like the flood that completely rearranges the shape and nature of the planet while this earth remains. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there won't be another earth. The Bible speaks about a new heaven and a new earth after Jesus comes. But what this is saying is that until Jesus comes, disasters will be smaller and more local. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, speaking of this promise, he says, it does not abolish disasters, but it does localize them so that the human family may overcome them by forethought, such as Joseph's, and by compassion, such as Paul's, citing 2 Corinthians 8.14. That's good to know. And I'm sure that gave Noah the encouragement that he needed to embrace the call that he was given to start again. See, Noah is a sort of second Adam. He and his family become the first family, the foundational family for all the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations that will follow. Noah is told, 
that he will be given time. He will be given time and he will be given stable conditions. That's so important. And that's a reflection of the patience and mercy of God. One of the main themes of this story is the patience and mercy of Almighty God. The Apostle Peter spoke about this patience in two different ways and in two different places throughout his correspondence. In in 1 Peter, he talked about God's patience in the 120 years before the flood. He said in in 1 Peter 3, 18, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So there, Peter seems to be saying that the Spirit of Jesus was in Noah, preaching a gospel of repentance in the days before the flood. Peter is saying that God held back his wrath and extended a call and provided a way such that any who responded to that call would be saved from death and ushered safely through punishment into life on the other side. God was being patient and merciful in the days of Noah. And then Peter says that he has been patient also ever since the days of Noah. He says that in 2 Peter chapter 3. There he's saying that some people think that the fact that the world goes on and on and on means that either God isn't there or that God doesn't care. But Peter corrects that. He says in verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, that is to say water and the word of God, The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the earthly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says that remembering the story of the flood ought to tell us two things. Number one, it should tell us that God isn't bluffing. He will renew the world, this time by fire, at a time of his own choosing. It will come swiftly and will catch many people unprepared. Do not doubt that. He did it before. He will do it again. But the second thing it should tell us is this. God will provide a way of escape. He will provide shelter from the storm. He will issue a call. He will offer mercy. And he will wait and give people plenty of time to respond. And then he will shut the door. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Old Testament and new, this is who God is. Even still, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You mentioned in the closing section there that Peter was directing us to consider the lessons of history or something to that effect. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. And it isn't just Peter that does this, actually. It's the Apostle Paul as well. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, close quote. Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul is writing here to a majority Gentile church, and he says, our fathers were all under the cloud. Our fathers, as in, this is our family history, and it was written down for a reason. Most of us don't think of the Old Testament that way. We think it is telling the story of the Jewish people, which is marginally interesting because, after all, Jesus was a Jew. But for most of us, our intimate connection with the Bible begins with the birth of Jesus. That's when our part of the story begins. But that's not what Peter said when he was reflecting on the flood. And that's not what Paul said when he was reflecting on the desert wanderings. They both said, that is our story. Jew or Gentile, if you are a child of God through faith in Christ, you are the seed of Abraham and this is your story. Yeah, that is so cool. I confess, I have never really thought about that. I do tend to think that my part of the story begins with the birth of Jesus. But as you say, it goes back a lot further than that. Absolutely. This is our story. And it has been preserved to teach the sons and daughters of God how to think, believe, and behave. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, the pattern of divine revelation, human disobedience, and divine judgment manifested in the Israelites' experience from Egypt to Canaan is reproduced in the New Testament era, close quote. Yeah, there's that typology thing again, right? Yeah, exactly. Typology just means pattern. And patterns are useful because God doesn't change and fallen people don't change. So these Old Testament stories tell us about God, they tell us about human nature, and they light up the path of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, then going back to this story in Genesis 8, the big pattern here is that God is holy, but also patient and merciful. Yes, and he provides a way of escape. He provides a way of salvation that allows him to be just and the justifier of those who believe. That was the ark in Genesis 8, and that is Jesus in the New Testament and forever. Exactly right. God is holy. He is merciful. He is patient. He will provide a means of salvation. He will ensure that the invitation is extended widely and he will wait. He will even allow himself to be defamed for waiting so long. But eventually his patience comes to an end and the door is shut. And woe to all those who remain outside. There is an obvious application here just waiting to be made and it is this. Come inside. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come unto Jesus 
and be saved. Amen. And I can't think of a better place for us to end. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 